Good to be back to this tall pulpit. I don't get to preach at many pulpits this height, but I like this one. George is not that tall. How'd you guys get such a tall pulpit? Whatever, huh? Yeah. When I came in, a guy looked at me who was here the last time I was here about a month ago. He said, you still haven't cut your hair. And I said, yes, I'm retired. I'm on a fixed income. I can't afford a haircut. My wife tells me we need to save our money. So that's what I'm trying to do my part here. I'm trying to do my part. It's great to be with you again. It's good to have several folks from Westminster here. Got a little row of Westminster people sitting over there. It's great to have them with us. If you would find in your Bibles this morning uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, please. Luke, chapter 15, if you'd turn there. Blake, I can't remember. Do you all stand normally? You do. Luke 15. Let's stand together. As we hear the word of God among the people of God, I'm going to read the entire chapter because it all hangs together. Luke 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And so he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field, into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
The father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look. These many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If you were to ask the man or the woman on the street the question, tell me, what do you think God is like? And then wait for an answer. You might get something like, if they believe God exists, something like, well, God is good. God is loving. God is kind. He's perfect. Uh, He's pure. He's powerful. You would ask the professional theologian that question, or a Bible scholar, he or she would probably use some bigger words. They would say something like God is self-existent, or he's omniscient, omnipresent, or maybe even Trinitarian, if he was a Presbyterian. But if you were to ask Jesus, that question, what is God like? He most likely would tell you a story rather than answer the question directly. Jesus loved to tell stories. He was very good at it. We call them parables. If you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you will discover that he told these stories all the time. Stories are a kind of indirect communication. It's a way of telling the truth slant. As the poet Emily Dickinson puts it, that is through the side door rather than the front door. Sometimes when you're trying to tell people something new or challenge the status quo, it's better to do it that way. If you go through the front door, people immediately sometimes put up their defenses. But if you go through the side door, you might have more success. Jesus knew that. In our passage today, Jesus wasn't actually asked the question, what is God like? But the parables he tells end up revealing this very thing here in Luke 15. He tells three parables here, and they all get at the same basic truth. And I want to focus on the last one. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, but I don't think that's a really good name because the parable is more than just about one son, the prodigal son. For one thing, there are two sons in this story, the prodigal son and then the oldest son, and both sons are lost. But for another thing, perhaps a bigger thing, the center of the parable is the father. 
The parable is all about how the father relates to his two boys, the young one and the older one. And if the father represents God, and we believe he does, almost everybody does in this parable, if the father represents God, then the parable is primarily about what God is like. What God is like. Let's go even deeper. The father in the parable is telling us what Jesus was doing. What Jesus was doing. That's what it's about. Jesus is explaining his own actions. Jesus was going to parties with tax collectors. He was eating with all the wrong kinds of people. Tax collectors, those were the folks worse than IRS agents. They worked for the enemy, the usurpers, those who ran the country. Jews who worked for them were considered betrayers and scandalous. Jesus was eating with these people, tax collectors. And not only them, he was eating with sinners. That's the word Luke Luke uses here. That is, people who just didn't show a whole lot of respect for the Old Testament law. People who stayed home on Saturdays, didn't go to synagogue, not because they were live streaming. They just didn't go to synagogue. They stayed home. These are the people Jesus was eating with and hanging out with. And Jesus tells the parable to explain his own actions. And what he ends up saying is that his actions, get this now, very important, his actions on earth, what he's doing, correspond exactly to God's actions in heaven. That's what's going on here. In other words, if the angels in heaven are rejoicing and partying when a person repents and turns to God, then earth should follow suit, shouldn't it? And so Jesus goes to parties and rejoices when people repent and turn to God. Put all that together, and here's what you get. Jesus is telling us through this parable that God is the kind of God who throws parties. I bet you don't normally think of God that way, do you? The kind of God who throws parties for those who repent and come to him. Not exactly the way most folks think of God. I've been to several parties in my long life. I imagine many of you have as well. The most unusual party I ever attended was connected to a wedding. Several years ago, my neighbor living right across the street came to me and um, asked me to marry him and his girlfriend who was living with him at the time. I barely knew him, but he lived across the street. Um, This was on a Tuesday. He wanted me to marry them on a Saturday. Not exactly long-term wedding plans here. Hmm. Well, to be, to, be, to be honest, though, the pastor he had lined up had gotten sick or something had happened. He couldn't do it, so he came to me. Why me? Because he loved to ride motorcycle, had a motorcycle, and saw mine sitting in the carport, I'm sure. So he was all about Harley Davidson. He wanted me to come marry him. So he said, Ruffin, look, this is not going to be a formal affair. He said, I'm going to wear, this is the groom talking now, I'm going to wear a T-shirt with a picture of the tux on the front. That should be a key. I should tip you off. This is not going to be a formal affair. He said, I want you to wear your leather vest and ride your motorcycle to the wedding. Because my motorcycle is going to be in the middle of the wedding. Part of the wedding. Now, I didn't know this guy very much. I didn't know where he was coming from spiritually. I didn't know about his girlfriend. I didn't know what to do. So I just said, okay, I'll marry you. Get a chance to talk about Jesus. That's what I'm going to do. Well, the wedding was going to be held at this very classy place called Shuckers. 
It's uh, since that time changed names. It's now called Daryl's. Shuckers is on the seedy side of town, Suffolk, if you know Suffolk at all, or Daryl's. I, I don't think I've ever been to Shuckers before. Now, I understand that Billy Corey goes there quite a bit, but I, Billy Corey, that is some Corey Realty, just remember that. He goes there a lot, but I never go there. But anyway, this wedding was going to be at Shuckers. I told Billy I was going to fit him into the sermon if he came, and so that's the best I could do. So I said, all right, so Saturday arrived. I ride my motorcycle up to Shuckers with my leather vest and get off, go in. And his motorcycle is smack dab in the middle. This is a pub slash restaurant, a bar that serves a little bit of food, in other words. His, his, his bike was smack dab in the middle of the pub. So I was told, look, we're going to take our vows over the motorcycle. I've heard of a unity candle. I've never heard of a unity Harley Davidson <laughs> wedding before. But that's what we did. And I talked about Jesus and talked about what his bride is like, and so I did my best. These are people I don't normally socialize with. After I finished the wedding, I got them hitched. This guy came up to me, a, a bit inebriated. He said, look, I'm thinking about getting married in Las Vegas in a couple of months. Would you come out there and marry me? <laughs> I said, I don't think so. I'm not going to do that. This is a very unusual party. Jesus went to a whole lot of those, I think. So we have that in common. So what does this parable tell us about the God who throws parties? First of all, I think it tells us this. God throws parties for self-destructive people. Get a a hold of that. Self-destructive people, which we're oftentimes very good at, aren't we? working against ourselves and our own humanity, people intent on destroying their lives who run after all kinds of things, things that promise happiness, shiny things, big things that look good. They promise happiness, but without God. People who run after these things then finally come to realize this ain't working so well. And they turn around and come back to God. God throws parties for these kinds of people. Now, this is exactly what the nation of Israel had done over and over and over for centuries in the Old Testament. God had referred to them as his son and had given them his laws to make clear the true path of shalom and happiness. And what did they do? Over and over, they choose another path to their own destruction. (laughs) It always works against them. And they get into trouble and then they cry out to God to save them. And God, in his compassion and mercy, does it again, does it again. So the people who heard this parable originally would have no doubt connected those dots. Israel, what we've been doing. For you and I, this parable tells us how we can also be self-destructive without building our lives around God. And it tells us what God is like and how he relates to people who even though they destroy their their lives, come back to him. It tells us what God is like. Let's read again verses 11 and following. Verse 11, and he said, There was a man who had two sons. And The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. 
And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. The picture is clear, isn't it? This boy wanted his freedom. (laughs) He wanted to be out from under the thumb of his father. But you understand, in that culture, to ask for your inheritance while your father was still living was actually to wish that your father was dead. Not only that, but to leave home meant that you rejected the responsibility that you have to care for your parents in their old age. He was not honoring his father, breaking one of the Ten Commandments right here. This was a shameful thing to do in that community. He could have justly been kicked out of the family. He could have been brought up on charges with the elders in the city as a Jew. But none of that happened because the father, being who he was, didn't press his rights from the very beginning. Note this now. This father from the very beginning is generous and full of compassion and slow to anger and full of pity for his son. Well, the younger son gets his money in his his pocket, and he's out of there, man. He's going to live it up now. He's got all kinds of plans. He's been waiting for this for years, and so he goes from bar to bar, from brothel to brothel. If it looks like fun, he's going to do it. He's got the money to do it now. Lots of booze and lots of babes. And that's his life, until he spends it all. It's all gone. And then a famine hits. Now what's he going to do? He hires himself out because he's at, his, he's at the end of his rope. You know, he's got nothing left. He hires himself out to take care of what? Pigs. Not exactly something you talk about if you're a Jew, huh? Pigs. And note this. In the story, he's eating what? Pig food. Jesus, this is his subtle way of saying, you see, when we run away from God, when we try to build our lives on anything but God, whatever, how shiny it looks, what often happens is this. We become like animals and eat animal food. Pigs. And so that's what he's doing. Then finally, one day, he just wakes up and says, what am I doing? This is crazy. He comes to his senses. And he, but he realizes, here's the problem, he realizes what? He's already burned a bridge. He has forfeited his right to be a son, hasn't he? He's rejected his father. He's left home. He hasn't respected that whole situation there. So here's what he'd do. This is his plan. He'd humble himself, go back to his father, because this is the only place he can go. He said, look, I, how about this? I just make me one of your servants, one of your slaves. I'm good with that. I know I can't be your son anymore. And so, he makes the long trip home. And I'll bet you, every night when he would lie down, thinking about his father, he rehearsed what he was going to say to his dad when he got there. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? And he had memorized it, no doubt. So finally he gets home, and he turns down that long lane to come up to the house, and his father sees him. And he knows it's his son. He knows the walk. He sees him. It's like he's been longing and looking for this boy for some time. And then he does what no self-respecting old man would have done back then. 
he lifts his robes and he runs to his boy. And he doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't scold him. He doesn't even get angry with him. You understand. You remember who this boy is. This is the boy who wanted his father dead. This is the boy who rejected his father. This is the boy who was not going to take care of his father in his old age. And what does the father do? He hugs him and kisses him. Can you imagine that? What kind of father is this? This man represents God. What kind of God is this God who would respond like this? The son begins to recite his repentance, but the father interrupts and insists that that the servants bring the best clothes. You understand, it's got to be the father's clothes now because the boy took all of his clothes with him. Bring the father's own clothes, bring the shiny ring, and bring some brand new, no doubt, Birkenstock sandals. A hoka tennis shoes, whatever. You see, what's happening is this. The father is reinstating the boy to be his son again. He's making him his son again. And then the father says, we, we got to throw a party here. Kill the fattened cab. Strike up the band and let's dance, baby. This son of mine, he was dead. He was a long ways off and he's come back home. Let's throw a party. This parable, you understand, would have shocked and surprised the people listening to Jesus. I can imagine them sitting there or standing there like this. Now, let's do a little mind experiment here. If your son demanded his inheritance before you died, perhaps leaving you with less resources to take care of you in your old age, if your son demanded his inheritance before you died, how would that make you feel? And if this same son went away, spent the whole thing, everything gone, on wild living, irresponsible living, and came back to you destitute and penniless, came up to your door and asked for some more, what would you say? I think I'd be tempted to say something like, my friend, my son, you made your bed, now lie in it. You played the fool, now live it. Wouldn't you? Is it not wonderfully surprising that God does not treat us that way. Amen? That God is a God full of generosity, full of compassion and pity for self-destructive people. It's a good thing because no one would come to faith and have life if God wasn't like that. Because it seems to me that we humans are very good at self-destructive kind of living. We just kind of work against our humanity, don't we? Now, let's don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying in this parable. 
Sometimes we can go a little, we can overplay our hand here. Jesus is not saying that, that you can drink all you want every day or whatever, just go right on drinking and your liver and your family will never suffer and everything's just going to be fine. Jesus is not saying that. Nor is Jesus saying that you can get involved as deep as you want to into pornography. Go as deep as you want, stay as long as you want, and you can come out and everything's going to be just fine. He's not saying that. That kind of living, in fact, all sin has real consequences, doesn't it? Jesus is not saying that. But what he is saying is this. No matter how far you go, no matter how deep you get in whatever mess you might be in, when you come to your senses and turn around and come to God, listen, he will run to meet you. He will run to meet you there. Not reluctantly. Run. And he will joyfully forgive you. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the kind of God Jesus is representing here. You do not have to live a life of shame. Heaven will throw a party. You do not have to stay on the outside. Now, so, the first thing Jesus tells us then is this. Here's what God is like. God's the kind of God who throws parties for self-destructive people. But there's another boy in the picture, right? In the story. Not just one. Not just a prodigal son. There's an older brother. And this is how the story ends. And in some ways, it kind of climaxes with this older brother. What's he like? How does he respond? The second thing I think Jesus wants us to get out of this parable is this. God not only throws parties for self-destructive people, God invites to parties self-righteous people. The other kind. (laughs) You know, those who think they've, they've got it together. Those who think they really have nothing to repent of. Those who think they're pretty much good with God. They're quite moral. As they compare themselves with others, they come out on top usually. Look at what happens here. Look at verse 25. 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was what? Angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. Still wouldn't go in. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. Can you can you just hear the scorn in his voice here? And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, I mean, how low can you get? You kill the fattened calf for him? What the heck? And he said to him, son, you're always with me. 
and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is now found. I'm calling this oldest son self-righteous. And what I think is happening here is this. His self-righteousness is showing itself in several ways. Let me just briefly share some of it with you. First of all, self-righteousness does not share in the father's compassion. The father refers to the younger son as your brother, but the older son speaks of him how? This son of yours. I don't want anything to do with him. He does not share in his father's compassion. That's the way self-righteousness works. It's not full of pity and love and compassion. It's full of a sense of superiority. I mean, the older son couldn't care less that his young brother had come back home, repented, so-called. He didn't care about that. Who did he care about? Himself. Secondly, self-righteousness also keeps people from God just as much as self-destruction. Have you ever thought about that? How many boys are lost in the story? Two. And both of them have been far from their father. One's come back, the other one's still living there, but he's just as far as a young boy was when he was in the far country. Self-righteousness keeps people from God just as much as self-destruction. The father entreats the oldest son to join the party, to come in. What does he do? He resists. Think of it this way. The oldest son ends up disrespecting his father just as much as the younger son when he left home. This son of yours. (laughs) And he is also breaking the same commandment. You shall honor your father and mother. He ain't doing that. Thirdly, self-righteousness oftentimes views God as a kind of slave master. Slave master. Look at verse 29 closely. Verse 29. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have what? Now, my Bible says served you. The word could be translated, I have slaved for you. You you see what's going on here. This was his attitude. He, he He just persevered. He had slaved for his father. Serving his father was a duty, but it was a hard duty. It was a burden. The younger son is happy to return home and just be a servant or slave. The oldest son seems to resent all the years he's been, in his mind, a kind of slave to his father. And then finally, see this. self Righteousness sees no need to repent. That's the way it shows itself. What I need to repent of. (laughs) I'm good. Look at verse 29 again. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. Now look at this. And I never, what? Disobeyed your command. Really? (laughs) You're not coming into the party. You're breaking the commandment right now. You're not honoring your father. You're so blind that you think you've never disobeyed his command. This older son doesn't need a savior. He needs a cheerleader. Way to go, man. You're so good. You're so much better than everybody else. Good job. God is so impressed. 
cheerleader. Self-righteous people, at the end of the day, don't really understand grace very well, do they? Grace is for bad people, not good people. Bad people, grace. Before I came to Christ, I came to Christ when I was in college at Virginia Tech. Uh, I had grown up in a family that attended church every Sunday. Windsor Christian Church, right there in big old Windsor, Virginia. We went to church every Sunday. But the church that I attended with my family every week was a kind of, well, it was a liberal church. It was a kind of do-goodism, just, you know, try to be good. We'd read the Bible, try to keep the commandments if you can. Just as long as generally you're better than the Baptist down the road, you're okay. You're good. And so that's how I thought about life. Compared myself to others, and usually I came out on top. Came out on top. I didn't drink much. Didn't do drugs much. Didn't sleep around. Didn't cuss. Didn't rob banks, respected my parents, didn't cheat on tests, at least not after the fifth grade when I got caught. Stopped doing that then. Listen, my friend. But I was just as far from God as the cussing, cheating, drinking sex addict. Just as far. My big sins, my big sins were pride lovelessness, and a spirit that wanted to go my own way. Now, the parable leaves us in limbo, doesn't it? It You know, you read the story, does the oldest son ever come in or not? It just kind of leaves you hanging, doesn't it? The father's saying, come in. He said, I don't want to come in. It just kind of leaves you there. It leaves you hanging. We're not told whether he comes in or not, like the door is still open. What we are told is this, and this is what I want to leave you with. We are told that when someone who was dead is now alive, when someone who was lost is now found, it's time to throw a party. A party. Heaven does. It's rejoicing, and earth should join in. So, let's end where we started. What is God like? What is God like? Well, God is just like Jesus. He attends parties and throws parties for those who were dead, who repent and turn back to him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have read and looked at and thought about your words this morning, your stories that you told. Drive them deep into our hearts. Fill us with gratitude and rejoicing, humility, as we think about your grace extended to us. We praise you as we take this supper. May we eat and drink of your goodness and compassion in your life. In your great name, amen.